Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to help end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for stories of true crime, true con, and urban legends from around the world. Happy Halloween, Huns! Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros. I am so stoked to be bringing you this episode today. I actually got to hang out with this guest all weekend at Obsessed Fest, and I will be bringing that update to you on the next episode. But I just have to say that Collier Landry's story is unbelievable. It is incredible, and it is so inspirational. I cannot wait for you to hear it. But I need to give you some content warnings because this is a really, really heavy episode. In this episode, we talk about violence, specifically narcissistic abuse and murder. But I will say that Call Your Story is truly one of the most inspirational ones that I've ever heard, and it is definitely worth the listen. I also want to thank our newest Patreon members. It's so great to see someone that I follow on social media, your tank top friend, join the Patreon. It's so good to have you. And also Sandra Jacobs, welcome. If you love the show and you are interested in more content, the Patreon is a great place to start. Not only are you going to get extra content, but your monetary support helps me produce every single episode. We currently have a free tier, so go on in, check it out, see what's there. And if you want to stick around and get some exclusive stuff, right now our subscriptions are as low as $5 a month. When I asked Collier what one of his favorite Halloween stories was, he admitted he's understandably not much of a scary story kind of guy but that the Great Pumpkin had always been a favorite for him. And I have to agree that the eponymous episode of The Peanuts is one of my favorite holiday specials of all time and contains one of the best lines in any cartoon ever. I got five pieces of candy. I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got a rock. So I decided, since so many of us have a special place in our hearts for The Great Pumpkin, that I could tell you a little bit about the history behind it. The Peanuts starring some of the most beloved characters of all time by Charles M. Schultz, was first printed as a comic strip in 1950 and was instantly popular. The Great Pumpkin was introduced in 1959 and was a storyline where Linus Van Pelt confuses the traditions of Halloween and Christmas. The original strip was part of an eight-comic series, and the next year a similar story returned twice the size and encompassed 16 comics. From then on, The Great Pumpkin was a major plot point every October. In December of 1965, A Charlie Brown Christmas, the first Peanuts TV special ever, was broadcast on CBS. The special was highly successful and prompted the network to order two more specials. The following year, in October 1966, It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown aired for the first time and has aired on broadcast television every year since, until 2020, when it became an Apple TV exclusive. If you are unfamiliar with this story, because you live under the rock in Charlie Brown's Tricks or Treats bag, Its plot follows the children of the Peanuts gang as they celebrate Halloween, 
and how Linus decides to skip all the festive Halloween celebrations and instead wait in what he believes to be the most deserving pumpkin patch for the mythical Great Pumpkin, an unseen character, to appear. According to the lore, the Great Pumpkin is a legendary personality who, on Halloween, rises from the pumpkin patch deemed most sincere and lacking in hypocrisy, carrying a large bag of toys and delivering them to believing children. To prepare for his arrival, Linus writes a letter to the Great Pumpkin and acknowledges the similarities between him and Santa Claus with Charlie Brown, also alluding to the fact that Santa Claus's popularity may be due to the fact that he has better publicity. Linus's beliefs in the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown's beliefs in Santa Claus, and their resistance to accepting the other's beliefs are described by Charlie Brown as denominational differences. Linus misses the Halloween party on purpose to spend the night waiting in the pumpkin patch. Despite his friends teasing and disbelief, Linus's faith in the Great Pumpkin never wavers. Later, in the pumpkin patch, Linus sees a figure that he believes to be the Great Pumpkin and faints. And at 4am, his sister Lucy goes out to the pumpkin patch, brings the sleeping Linus home, and puts him to bed. In the morning, a humbled and determined Linus promises to be back next Halloween. Now, without Vince Guaraldi providing the Great Pumpkin Waltz as a soundtrack, this type of unwavering belief may feel familiar, and it's no surprise, because the Great Pumpkin has been compared to both those of strong faith and those of foolish faith. Linus's fervent, unshakable belief in the Great Pumpkin and his desire to proselytize those same beliefs on others has sometimes been interpreted as a parody of evangelicalism. Others have compared Linus's belief as symbolic to the struggles faced by those who do not follow mainstream religions. And still, others describe Linus's lonely vigil as a metaphor for an existential crisis. While Charles Schultz was religious, he rejected evangelicalism and the revelations, believing that no one denomination could be sure of the truth. And though Mr. Schultz himself claimed no motivation beyond the humor of having a child confuse Halloween and Christmas, followed by the need to go out and sing pumpkin carols, he did model Linus's devotion on the children of families who didn't have the means to purchase tons of Christmas presents and the hope that if they just maintained faith, things would be better next year. The initial broadcast of It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown took place on October 27, 1966 on CBS and tied Bonanza as the number one broadcast that week in the Nielsen TV ratings. It aired against Star Trek on NBC and The Dating Game on ABC and earned 49% of the total market share with 17.3 million viewers. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, was the first major Halloween special to broadcast on television, so you can thank the Peanuts for helping define a new and highly beloved genre. And the enduring cult following of the show helped to define Halloween for the Baby Boomers generation, and contributed to the popularity of Halloween as a widely celebrated holiday. Watching It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown has become a common Halloween tradition, and its 2003 rebroadcast was the most successful holiday special of the 2000s, with 13.2 million viewers. It's one of my favorite specials of all time, and I will leave you with a bit of wisdom from our friend Linus Van Pelt. There are three things I have learned never to discuss with people. Religion, politics, and the Great Pumpkin.
Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. It's another true crime story for October. I am so excited to welcome my guest, Collier Landry. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Roberta. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> oh, man. I, like every time you pop up on my feed and I hear you sing that, I'm like, oh, it's a good morning. Call your singing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we're here to talk about a couple things. We're going to get into your story first, but yeah. we're also going to kind of dive a little bit more into ethical true crime. Sure. We talked to Tara, who you know very <laughs> closely. Yes, I do. <laughs> Not only is she your co-host, but she's also your girlfriend. She is. I was warned this was going to come up. She's mm -hmm. like, people like knowing that we're dating. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> whatever works. People think it's cute. I like it. I'm, it gives people hope. You know, you guys both went through incredibly traumatic things. And to be able to not only get through that, find closure, move through it and heal and then find love with somebody who actually understands is it's hopeful. So I like it. Well, thank you for saying that. Cause with me, it's like, yeah, it's very rarely do you meet someone. It's not like it's like on your dating profile, right? You know, like, we're like, so just, I went through this massive trauma and we're going to talk, like, you can't really talk about that. And it's always awkward when you're on a date with someone or they're like, so tell me about your childhood. <laughs> well, how long do you have? Or my favorite thing would always be like, oh so you're adopted well tell me what that was like well it wasn't like a normal situation well no i know because adoption isn't really you know it's not all that common and i was like no but when your dad kills your mom and you witness it and then you go to foster care and then you're finally adopted like that's a whole other thing they're like wait hold on what <laughs> so <laughs> it's very interesting to date someone who's been through not the same kind of trauma but very extreme trauma and to sit there and you can have a laugh about it. They understand where you're coming from. They understand your need for space. They understand that, you know, you might not always be, I'm a pretty sunny, happy guy to begin with. It just has always been my nature, but they understand like, you know, when things get overwhelming and you might get extra overwhelmed by things. And that's sort of like a trauma response. They see all that and they recognize that and they can give you space. Whereas I feel like in other relationships, they either use that against you. They weaponize it, which is often because when you go through trauma and you have narcissistically abusive, a situation that you grew up in, right? And, you know, my father's a narcissist and a, and a psychopath. So you tend to attract those people in your lives. So, because it feels normal, right? So then when you're in a relationship with someone like that, they weaponize all of your, any, anything they can, they weaponize against you to manipulate you and to maintain control over you. And you don't really realize it until you are like, oh my God, and then you're stuck. And then you have to figure out a way out of it, which is always very tricky. Yeah. With someone who has been through that and who has understands healthy boundaries, who understands who, who has spent a lot of time working on themselves, they understand all that. And you don't have to go through these conversations and you get like, oh, that's a really, it's a, it's a big relief to find that in a partner. It's like, oh, okay, they get it, you know, because you don't really have that a lot. You said that beautifully. Absolutely. I, I think that's probably another reason why I'm hesitant to step into the dating pool because there's a lot of like, <laughs> how much time do you have kind of stuff as well. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm ready for that, but like I said, watching you guys and knowing you individually and together is very hopeful. I think 
for a lot of people listening to. Well, I think about like you, you have kids, right? So I think about it in the same way as like, you, you know, if you date someone who's single, who has never been married and who never has kids, they don't know what it's like to have kids and the sacrifice or anything. I feel like that's the same thing as what, when a single parent enters the dating field, forget the MLM and all the other craziness, right? Yeah. Just that, like you find this common ground of like, oh, they have kids. They understand that they have to go to their dads on the weekends or they have to go to their moms on the weekends and they have to, we have to split time and it's time for, right. you know what I mean? Because it's a whole delicate balance. It is a relief to find someone that understands that. So that's how I can relate that back to you. Yeah. Hopeful. Like I said, I love it. hopeful. I love it. So you very casually brushed past it. So we're going to get into a little bit more, but you <laughs> like how I did that. It's just a casual, it's like a casual. just a little drop in the bucket. Yeah. My dad killed my mom and you know, I was a kid, whatever. You have a documentary that you made yeah. that really brilliantly goes through the entire story. And then also you trying to find closure, but let's start at the beginning when this happened to you, and again, we're going to talk about ethical true crime. So you can give as much or as little detail as you want, whatever makes you comfortable to share your story. I know that you're a pro and you've done it so many times, but sort of give us as much or as little as you would like to tell us about what happened that night and then afterwards. Sure. And I, I want to kind of preface all this with, you know, and I love that you say ethical true crime, right? And, you know, my film, A Murder in Mansfield, is one of those films and Variety said it best. They said, the film comes dressed as true crime, but it's really a plea for humanity. When we made the film, we were not setting out to make a true crime film. We're literally telling my story, the story, the consequences of violence, the impact, and then eventually I confront my father in prison, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's about me processing all of this as an adult and going through that because I had developed an entire career around becoming a filmmaker to tell this story, right? And... The interesting thing is I never thought about true crime. I never really knew what true crime was. I never really cared because I wasn't into it. It only recently came up in the last year and a half when I started a true crime podcast that I was like, oh, there's this whole commodification around people's stories, obviously. And I realize that the media and et cetera, et cetera, but there's, you know, there's a whole cottage industry of creators, podcasters, YouTube creators, storytellers, documentarians that is all cultivated around the commodification of tragedy, <laughs> yeah, right? And people's traumatic experiences and violence and all these things. And so you have to figure out a way, if you want to, if you want to be ethical in these situations to toe the line, because, you know, there is often a side that focuses on the very morbid encounters that people have and exploits that. Then you have a side that often forgets about the victims and the ancillary victims that are that are centered around true crime or around these crimes themselves and focuses on the perpetrator and the glorification of the perpetrator. We've seen series like the Dahmer series, name your favorite serial killer that's had a series about them, right? There's this glorification, almost deification, right? Yeah. I mean, Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. And I also, at the same time, like people will go after Zac Efron. I'm like, Zac Efron's an actor. Right. And he's known for being a happy dancing around the screen type of guy and he choke on a role. He's an actor. Leave him out of that. Right. It, that is, he has nothing to do with that. But there's this whole, this glorification and it feels like a deification of these perpetrators. And then also like, because the perpetrators themselves in real life, they all suffer from a messiatic syndrome to begin with, which is why they're already right. problematic people for society in the first place. Right. So there is this, it's very interesting. So I sort of 
I was so removed from it. And it wasn't until I met someone like Tara and, you know, had interviewed her on my show and then started interviewing more people in the true crime world and was really wrapping my head around people whose stories were exploited, but also people who were coming in there to tell stories and were also sort of straddling the line between exploitation and also trying to do right by the victims and the families, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of these things that come into play. So on that note, this is my story. <laughs> so let me preface it with this. I grew up in what I thought was a, just a normal childhood, right? I was an only child until I was age 11. I thought I had just what every child had. I had a mother and father. And my father was a doctor. He wasn't around a lot, especially when we, you know, I, I grew up the first five years of my life on a naval base in Dahlgren, Virginia. We moved to this small town called Mansfield, Ohio, because my father was going to take over running this hospital there, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's sort of when I started noticing that my father wasn't around as much. But I just kind of chalked up to the game of like, well, my mother always explaining, well, you know, daddy's very busy. He's always at work, et cetera, et cetera. Also, my father had this proclivity for violence towards both myself and my mother. He was a rageaholic. He could be very apoplectic, you know, tempered. I remember one time I dropped an egg on the floor on a Saturday morning when we were making breakfast and he threatened to kill me. You know I mean? Scream, yelling, threatened to kill my mother, slammed the door, broke all the windows in the window panes in the door, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he was a rageaholic. And I grew up in this very sort of, you know, don't anger dad, don't, you know. And I, under those circumstances, I was always my mother's constant companion. And plus the fact that my father wasn't around a lot. So I didn't really realize that a lot was wrong in that situation until as I started getting older, 10, 11 years old, I realized that, well, because my father had introduced me to his girlfriend and asked me to lie about it. What? And I'm speaking very generally, but like there's a lot more to the story, but he had said that this woman was a friend and then she surprised us on Father's Day with these remote control cars. He, my father went to the tanning salon. This is 1980s, remember? Late 80s, early 90s <laughs> when all this takes place. <laughs> so people are going to the tanning salons and his girlfriend surprised us. And he's like, look who's here. It's Sherry. And, and I just met her one time before that. My father had explained that she was a patient. She was 20 some years younger than my father. And she gave us these remote control cars. And my father asked me to lie about Sherry meeting us. And I had noticed that she was wearing a ring that looked like a ring that my mother had owned. And I even commented on it and said, that looks like my mommy's ring. And she just kind of giggled and looked at my father. And then as I'm playing with the remote control car in the, in the parking lot of this tanning salon, I noticed that they're like making out, which I had never seen before. And I, oh my God. And I thought, okay, there's something going on. So my father had asked me to lie about it, which I did to my mother that night on, because it was Father's Day, 1989. And I, that night I got really sick. And obviously because I was so sick because I'd never lied before. Like, you know, I mean, obviously kids tell fibs and whatnot. Right. Like, you know, I didn't put the, I didn't do that. But like, that's like a lie, like a real big lie, right? To lie to your mother about seeing your father with this other woman. So remember I sat down with my mother and I was, I felt so guilty. And I said, mommy, I said, I think I have something to tell you. I think that daddy has a girlfriend. My mother knew this. My mother knew about the 40 other girlfriends before that and probably the 40 others that he would have had after that. You know what I mean? My mother had known that my father was a womanizer for well over two decades since they had been together. But of course, I never knew this. And one of the sort of covenant that they had 
when we had moved to Mansfield and as my father was developing this private practice is she said, look, Jack, my father's name is Jack, John Boyle, but he went by Jack and he said, Jack, you do whatever the hell you want. Just don't involve Collier. Like that's it. And once he involved me, that was like the crossing of the Rubicon, Oh my god! you know, and like all good narcissists, they can't adhere to any sort of boundaries or he can't go, okay, well, I just won't involve the kid live for the sake of peace. Now he didn't care. Right. So that ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back with my mother. She was furious, obviously. And they proceeded to go into divorce proceedings a, a few months later, but it, things were very tenuous at the home. Now, at the same time, my mother had just adopted a three-year-old girl from China, from Taiwan. So I had a sister for the first time. This, this, this was six months before the event, if you will. And so we had this new person, this new entity in the home. And I loved having a little sister and, and it was great. But now there's all this drama. So my father, you know, this is a very contentious divorce. And my father being the very angry and violent, you know, because of course it's not his fault. It's her fault, right? Right. <laughs> for putting her foot down and saying, this is enough, things were getting progressively worse in the home. And my father wasn't there a lot. Like I said, my father oftentimes is not around very much. And I spent, I would say 99% of the time with my mother, you know, that might be a little hyperbolic, but I said that on the witness stand, but I spent the majority of the time with my mother. So my upbringing was obviously, you know, she taught me a lot of things and education was very important in our home. Both my parents were Ivy League educated as I said, my father was a doctor. My mother was a bookkeeper. She kept his books. She was a dental hygienist. And, you know, it, this whole thing just started to blow up. And it was December 30th, 1989. My father showed up with my grandmother, who is his mother, who was very close with my mother because my mother didn't really have a very good relationship with her mother. I mean, her mother had passed by this time, but so she was always very close to my father's mother. So, you know, she shows up and it was funny because my mother, who loved to say famous last words, she had said to one of her best friends that night on the telephone, she said, well, he just showed up with his mother, so I guess he can't kill me tonight. <gasps> so that night I went to bed. I kissed my mother goodnight. I kissed my grandmother goodnight. I kissed my mother goodnight and said, mommy, I love you. And I woke up in the middle of the night to a scream. It was around 3, 3.18 a.m. And then I proceeded to hear two loud thuds separated by about a minute apart. Oh, my God. I heard my father muttering, and I counted 12 footsteps as they walked down the hallway. And I used to sleep with my door open. And sleeping with my door open, I was snuggled up and I could see out of the corner of my eyes, these footsteps stop in my doorway and something told me don't look up because I knew at that moment. And I firmly believe today that if I had looked up, I wouldn't be here at that point. You know, all you got to do is say, you know, make the hole a little bit bigger and say she ran away with the kid. <laughs> I knew that there was nothing that I could do in that moment to look. I was an asthmatic little kid. You know, I had really bad asthma growing up, especially around that time. And my father is six foot four and he was probably 230 pounds at the time, 240, a big guy. I knew I wouldn't have stand, stood a chance, right? I somehow went back to sleep. The, the footsteps left the doorway and I went back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, a couple hours later, I ran straight to her bedroom 
and I started rummaging through her bed and I knew I, I was looking for blood and the way that her bed was laid out there, were, it, the sheets were all in disarray. And there's one thing that my mother instilled in me. I still do it to this day. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I make the bed. <laughs> like that's my thing. <laughs> so my mother was very strict on that. She would have made the bed. She would be downstairs making coffee. So I knew something was awry already that morning. I go downstairs and my father is sitting on the couch with a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just taken a shower. And I said to him, where is my mother? He didn't answer me right away. So I said again, where is my mother? And he very calmly looks over at me. And he goes, well, call your mommy took a little vacation. Oh my God. And that's when I knew that he had killed her oh. and that it, maybe he hadn't killed her, but he had done something with her. He then launches into this whole diatribe about how we're not going to contact the police. He starts telling me this whole story about how, because I asked him, I said, well, I heard these noises. And he said that the noises that I heard was my mother throwing her purse at him and it hit the wall. And that was what that thud was. And then she threw credit cards at him and they got into an altercation and she left. She literally left our house on December 31st, 1989, the dead of an Ohio winter walked out the back door, no jacket, no purse, no nothing, no kids and got into a car. The driveway must've been, you know, from that time, 30, 50 yards long, maybe in the snow and got into a car that was waiting at the end of the driveway and left. <laughs> wow. That's the story he came up with in the few hours he had. That was the story that he come up with. And the interesting thing that really tipped off for me is he's talking about how we're not going to contact the police and we're not going to contact the FBI. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm almost 12 years old at this time. And I'm thinking to myself, like way to escalate it. Like, why would we be calling the FBI? Because even then I knew it's not like there was CSI on television and all these things, right? This is something that like, this is a small town in Ohio, like population 30,000 in the county. You know what I mean? I just was like, like, there's no way. My father leaves that day and my grandmother is like, you know, okay, so you're going to listen to your father. We're not going to call the police. We're not going to do this. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, it's not happening. Right. So one of the things that I had done, because before all of this in like around Thanksgiving time, my mother was like, I could tell that the divorce was really weighing on her. My father was just getting uglier and uglier. And of course he had sort of had a stranglehold on us because he had the money. Right. Right. So, and he's got this girlfriend and he's, you know, just living the life. Fantastic. My father didn't have any reason to do what he did. She's really down one day and we're, she had just picked me up from school and we were, we used to go eat at this place called Bob Evans. My mom didn't <laughs> feel like cooking. I was going to get oatmeal and eggs and you know, whatever for dinner. She said to me in the car, she says, Collier, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to know your father probably had something to do with it, that your father probably had me killed. To get to that point that you are prefacing this to your child, just in case mommy goes missing or something happens to mommy, daddy did it. Like the fact that she yeah. even had to say that to you, she must have been terrified every day of her life. Yeah, it was really surreal you know she was telling me he had mafia connections etc and and i was like well mommy he would never do that like i'm thinking to myself you know i know he's an asshole but <laughs> like, like he would never do that right my father you know had said that and my grandmother you know, he leaves and she's like you know we're not gonna do anything and i'm like 
no, this is game on. So one of the things that I had done based upon that conversation with my mother is I had written down on a piece of paper all of her friends' phone numbers, and I hid them inside of a, a stuffed Garfield that I had. I used to love Garfield, so I had a bunch of Garfield stuffed toys as a kid. I had this like Santa Claus like Garfield, and I stuck it in the little Santa hat, this list, to hide it. So I grabbed my mother, just got a cordless phone. I grabbed the cordless phone. I ran upstairs. I got that list and I locked myself in the bathroom. And I started calling everybody oh and I said, look, I told them what happened. I said, you need to call the police. I said, I can't call the police they, because because I'm being watched. My father said not to, but my father said not to, but you should call the police and get them here. So someone did obviously. And two uniform officers show up and my grandmother is, she is just pissed. And yelling at me, I called the police. And I was like, I didn't call the police because I didn't call the police. <laughs> I just called someone to <laughs> call the police. And my grandmother was hovering around me like a hawk, you know, watching me. And I was able to get one of the officers aside. I said, look, and I used a line that my mother had said, which was, I don't trust your father as far as I could throw him. So I was like, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him. <laughs> he just kind of looked at me. He's like, this kid. But, you know. They laughed and I couldn't really give them any more information because my grandmother's literally there, like making sure I don't talk to the police. And she's like, I don't know what happened. And they got into a fight or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And she's trying to downplay it oh all my right. God. I'm just like floored that your grandmother was so complicit. I So it's interesting you said that because I get a lot of that. Like, why is your, did your grandmother know? No, I don't think she knew. And I don't think it's like, this is her son. So my father is Italian Irish. So my grandmother is a little Italian woman. He is her firstborn. That is how an Italian mother behaves. You know what I mean? Like she, I think that despite her better judgment, you know, look, she put her house up for his trial, for his lawyer fees on top of wow. his own money. You know, yeah, it was a big deal. So the officers left and like nothing happens. My father comes home that night. I'm waiting for like cops to come and like, okay, we're going to get this shit fixed now. Nothing happens. So my father leaves again the next day. I call my mother's friends. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, well, we contact them. We filed a missing persons report. I was like, okay, guys. I was like, this isn't, it's not a missing persons case. Like, like something's happened to her. Like, I don't know if she's dead or she's locked in a, like a storage locker somewhere, or I don't know where, but like, I'm not the adult. Right. <laughs> like I can't go jump in the car and go look for her. So as fate would have it, a detective by the name of Lieutenant David Messmore, this is new year's day in a sleepy small town in Ohio. And he just happened to see, the police report come across his desk for the missing persons. He doesn't have a lot to do. And he's like, this is interesting. A doctor's wife goes missing on new year's Eve. I'm like, hmm, it's kind of odd. I'm going to go look, check this out. I got nothing better to do. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. 
They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete.me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete.me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete.me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect, effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. So he arrives at the house and wants to talk to my dad who's not there. And he charms his way into the house because I'm like, come on in. And my grandmother's like, she just loses it. And she runs to go get the phone because she's going to call my father and tell him that, that this guy has come in the house and yada, yada, yada. Right. And I knew at that moment, my mother used to tell me stories when I was a kid about the carousel horses and like you would go to the merry-go-round, you'd ride on the carousel horse and you try to grab the brass ring. Yeah. So you can win a prize. She'd always say to me, grab the brass ring, which is like essentially when the opportunity comes to do something, like you have to be prepared to recognize those key moments in life when it's like the time is now. I knew when my grandmother left me alone with Detective Messmore, I knew that was the brass ring moment, that I wasn't going to get another opportunity like this. And I said to him, look, something has happened to my mother. She would never leave me. Give me your card. I'm going to school tomorrow and I will contact you when it's safe. Oh my God, Collier. Now, I mean, and this is like a lot for like a a kid, you know, and I'm almost 12 years old at this time, but this is the thing. I like, (laughs) I was not a kid who grew up with like parents who, I was the last kid. I had just got Nintendo that year. Nintendo had been out for years. 
education was held in such high regard in my household. I was a kid who would go to school and then summer vacation would hit. I get a like week to play with my friends. I go back into summer school and take more classes because I'm, and I loved it. I was a nerd. You know what I mean? I was, I mean, I was a nice kid and friendly and all that, but I loved to learn. I was, my parents would have me listen to NPR. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was that kid. I wasn't the kid that watched like television was not something that was like on all the time, unless it was like an educational program. I would watch Larry King live with my dad sometimes. Like those were the things that I was raised with. My parents both treated me like an adult. I was never ever babied, you know, outside of like, okay, I was asthmatic and there was an issue with that, but I was, my mother was very strict. I was <laughs> always treated like as a little adult. So I thought about this situation as an adult, like, what are the logical things? Okay, cool. I'll be at school tomorrow and nobody, and my grandmother won't be here. My father won't be here. It'll be a safe zone. I could talk to this guy. And that's what I did. The next day I went to school. And the first thing I did is I went into the principal's office and I said, you need to call this guy and get him down here. Dave Messmore came down to my school and I spent hours completely just unfolding the entire history of my parents as I knew them from childhood to adulthood, childhood to childhood. You know what I mean? Since I was a little kid, the thing I told him all about the girlfriend, you know, everything that I knew, my father's proclivity for violence, all this stuff. And I think that Dave, well, I know that Dave was just looking at me like, who is this kid? <laughs> you know, the thing is that with my story, and I probably don't talk about it enough, but I think about like children nowadays and children that are in domestic violence situations that they don't ever feel safe to talk. Yeah. Like I felt safe. I knew that for that moment in time, and I didn't know how long that moment in time was going to last. I didn't know if my dad was going to yank me out of the school or not. You know what I mean? Like, so I knew at that moment, yeah. again, brass ring, that that was my moment to be able to literally say anything I wanted. Like this, I'm going to push all the cards in the middle of the table. And I told Dave Messmore, I said, look, I'm going to go home tonight while my grandmother's downstairs making dinner. I'm going to sneak upstairs and I'm going to pull the bookcases out of the wall where I know our crawl space is. There's a couple of bookcases and stuff. And I'm going to look for my mother's body. <laughs> and if I don't find that, I'm going to look for her handbag because I know that she would never leave the house without this one handbag. Right? She would never do this or she would never do that. And I started building a case against my father because I had the access to him that no one else did because he would come home at night because he was building a practice in Erie, Pennsylvania, five hours away from Mansfield or four hours, five over the state lines. And I knew that he would come home and, you know, I would be taking mental notes of everything. And, and one of the things is I just had, I had like a, you know, I still do to this day. I have a memory like an elephant. I remember everything. I have just really high attention to detail. I don't know why it's just one of those gifts that I have. So I would be taking mental notes like he had these cuts on his hands and then he had these like bruises and then he had um, he was sore one night and he had me rub his shoulders with Ben Gay because he said he was moving boxes. I started taking notes about all of this. And then, you know, I like I said, I had just gotten a Nintendo and he took me to get a video game and I was playing that video game and the video game was violent and he was like abhorred by it. He's like. I would never have bought this game for you if I knew it was violent. And I'm thinking to myself, who are you? Like literally the year before my mother had left to go to Taiwan to meet my sister's family and stuff to sort of arrange the adoption. And I couldn't go because I was so sick with asthma. I would have died on the plane. Jeez. 
And I was left alone with my father for two straight weeks, abused me. And he would throw things at me, call me a stupid little fat boy. Oh my God. Tell me how my mother is, you know, I'm sorry to use this language with the audience, but like how my mother was going to raise me to become a little f- Oh my God. And uh, like all this just vulgar stuff. And my father did this to me my entire life, by the way. Like this wasn't just one incident, but this is like when my mother wasn't there to protect me. Oh my God. So this is a guy and he would make fun of me and not let me cover my eyes if there was a violent movie because I was a kid that didn't like want to see that. My mom doesn't like that. So like I would cover my eyes and like violent parts or sex scenes in a movie or whatever. You know what I mean? Because I was like a good little kid, right? You know, I wasn't like a churchgoer, but I was like, I, I was sort of, I was raised a certain way right. and my father would berate me about that. So for him to start saying this video game is violent, I was like, who, like, are you Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yeah. What is going on? It was just all of these behaviors were so odd. Sociopathic. And I was just taking notes. And I would go to school and I would call Dave Messmore up or have him come down. I'd be like, okay, this is what he was doing now. This is what he did. But it wasn't until mid-January that I discovered something that was really significant. And my father had, you know, one night he said, hey, I'm going to go to my office and go pick up some paperwork. Do you want to come with me? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to let you out of my sight, bro. <laughs> like, yeah, you're like, I want to collect evidence. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I can go snoop around the office and see what's going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> So on the way back home, we stop at the gas station and my father goes into the gas station. I'm watching him through the cab in his truck and he's in there and I just start rummaging through his truck and I open up the center console and I find two photographs. One is of a house that I've never seen before. And the second one was of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, her two children. And they're sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic, like covered in plastic. And to me, I thought, this is a new house. Be that signal to me, like there's something that's going on. Like why would the fireplace be wrapped in plastic? It must be a new fireplace in a new home that I've never seen before. That was one of the biggest moments. And I told Dave Messmore about that. Over this period, this is January, 1990. Over this period of time, my father over the weeks is acting more. He, every night he has his attorney, his divorce attorney over every night. And they're always meeting in the, in the, the dining room talking about whatever. And Dave Messmore keeps coming to the house, mind you, to talk to my father, to try to get a statement from him. And I see him at the door and I'm playing like, I don't know you, you don't know me, but we have this like secret, like I'm going to see you tomorrow. And like, like, this is what they talked about when you left. I mean, there's a whole thing happening here. I'm giving him all the information. You're like a real life hardy boy. I'm like, like a hardy, yeah, I guess it's like a hardy boy novel. <laughs> it's so funny is like, I never really talk about this, but one of the things that had happened one of the movies that had come out that summer, 1989, was Batman with Michael Keaton as Batman, yes. Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Oh, yes. I didn't know anything about Batman, but I became obsessed with Batman. And I think that I literally became like the Cape Crusader. And it's like, I never wanted to be that, right? Because ultimately I become an orphan because one of my parents is murdered and you know, it's a crime. And it's like, I never wanted to be Bruce Wayne, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I would have taken the billions of dollars, but that wasn't in the equation. No, I mean, I just never, it's interesting. I think about that. Like I was being Batman. Yeah. I was trying to find anything I could. To avenge your mother's death. Yeah. Well, well, he wasn't going to get away with it. Like I was going to find out what happened to her by hook or by crook. 
But what happened is that like, you know, over these weeks, he's got this very passive attitude, which is super weird because he's a very violent, aggressive guy. So he's totally turned this like very performative. Yeah. Like, like just like the polar opposite of toxic masculinity. He was that what's going on. I'm like, wait, we're going to talk about our feelings and like, wait, what, like what? Like, this is weird. But he says to me, he goes, you know, he sits me down and I'll never forget this. And he goes, you know, Collier, I mean, this is the typical like psychopathic, narcissistic, just spin manipulation on someone. He goes, you know, Collier, I know it's been really hard on you since mommy chose to leave us in such a state. (gasps) She's left us here to fend for ourselves, but we'll get through it with our strength. But I really think it would be really great. I have a medical conference that's coming up in Florida in a couple of days. And I think that we should have a father and son trip. Just go you and I, and we can bond and it can make us stronger and really just deal with this, the the family and the grief of mommy just leaving us in such a, a horrific state and just up and abandoning us like she did. Oh my God. And I knew at that moment when my father said that to me, because two things, one is yes, every year we would go to a medical conference in Clearwater Beach, Florida, but it was in the spring not two or three weeks after Christmas. And second of all, I had been able to swim since I was four years old. I knew I was going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I knew that I was not coming back from Florida alive. (laughs) Oh my God. And so next day I called Dave Messmore and I said, he wants to take me to Florida and I'm not coming back. You can't let me go. And two days later, 6 a.m. in the morning, Two members of Children's Services come into my bedroom, wake me up, and they said, you got 20 minutes to pack a bag. We're getting out of here. And that was the morning of January 24th, 1990. I packed a bag for my sister and myself, and I asked them if I could take my dog. And they said, we'll come back for your dog. I never saw my dog again. And as I came down the stairs, the entire house was flooded with police officers, men and women in white lab coats, all kinds of contraptions. My grandmother is screaming. They're serving a search warrant. Dave Messmore is there. It's a whole thing. And I'm just like, wow, this is really happening. And everything that I knew, I already knew that my life was over at that point. Like I knew that everything that I had ever known was already over, but you're sort of like hoping that like, okay, well, this will resolve itself. I'm just making this up. You kind of gaslight your own yourself and like, I'm making all this up. This is, I'm just in a really bad dream and I'll wake up and everything will be fine. My mom will be back and it'll be all good. That's when it starts to hit you. Like reality is like, Oh, Oh shit. Like this is like, this is really happening. Like, and then of course you did, you're just like, okay. Oh shit. Like I'm the cause of all this, by the way, because I've initiated all of this. I really hope that this somehow gets an answer, but I really hope it's not the answer that I'm thinking it is. I really hope it's not what I think it probably is going to be. So I go to my middle school principal's house that day and I'm, this woman comes and she introduces herself and she says, I'm, a, I'm a, your caseworker. I don't know what a caseworker is, but I just know that it is not a good thing to have a caseworker. Oh, man. <laughs> and she's like, well, you're not going to school today. You're just going to kind of hang out here. We're in. And she basically is telling me like, police are looking for your father and they can't find him. Oh my God. And I'm just like, this just keeps getting better and better. Sarcastic. Of course. So that night, because I had rushed to get out of my house, I had the worst asthma attack of my life at that point. So much so that I thought I was going to die. And I didn't have any of my medicine because, of course, now it's my, now my house is a crime scene, right? So just can't go in there and get stuff. And I somehow make it through the night. 
And I go to the hospital the next morning and I get treatment and I get my steroid injections, et cetera, et cetera. And a family friend who was a doctor, he was a cardiologist. He gave me the breathing treatment. He, you know, he basically stabilizes me. But one of the interesting things is when I walk into the hospital is there's a bunch of people in the lobby and, you know, remember the honor boxes where they have newspapers in and, you know, it's like the front page is in the honor box. And yeah, I get shuffled past that. Like I'm walking that way and then I get diverted over another way. I'm in this room and I can breathe. And then they're like, okay, so call your Lieutenant Messmore found your mother. <gasps> There's like this very long pause is what it seems like. It probably really wasn't, but it was followed with, and she was dead. <sighs> it is very difficult to properly articulate how the sort of cognitive dissonance that goes on in a situation in a moment like that, where you are relieved that what you had thought was true really was. Right. And then also how the overwhelming sorrow and sadness that comes down simultaneously that what you thought was true really was. Yeah. You're like, on one hand, I'm not crazy. This did happen. But on the other hand, this happened. And that's, yeah. oh my God, Collier. <sighs> I'm so sorry. That's probably, oh, and it's okay. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. But, you know, that's probably like the hardest thing out of all of this is just being in that particular moment right there where <sighs> everything is just compressed. And also that, but you are literally in that moment going, well, what the fuck is going to happen now? Because now you, like, <laughs> as if I already didn't know, like cops at the house and my mom's gone and all this stuff, like, but like, all right. So I thought we were off the ride at theme park, but no, I guess we're going to go up this like really big hill and this big drop now. Like, you're just like, oh, now the real circus starts yeah. like, oh, okay. And it did. It was like, that's when everything kicked into high gear. So. I testified at the grand jury and helped secure my father's indictment for murdering my mother. I will say watching the footage of you on the stand, mm -hmm. I was just, I was like, go call your. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, cause we had already been friends at this point when I watched it and it was yeah. just, just the most articulate precocious, but like in the most adorable way yeah. of you being on the stand and you being Batman and being your mom's hero. Yeah. And giving your mother her voice to get justice for what your piece of shit narcissist father did to her. Yeah. It's this I don't you guys have to watch the documentary, but it's just the footage of you testifying is so unbelievably powerful. Yeah, it's wild. I just you are such a brave like a brave kid and a, a brave man now too, but man, I couldn't even imagine. Like I said, Abby's the same age. And I honestly, I mean, I think Abby would have done the same exact thing you did. She's that same kind of kid who would have been like, oh, we're going to pretend and I'm going to collect evidence on the back end and figure this out. Like, I feel like she would do the same thing, Yeah, which makes me feel good. But then at the same time, makes me super sad to think that you were the age she is yeah. right now in that innocent middle school, like learning yeah. every, and this is what you were going through at that time in your life. Your childhood is eviscerated oh. in the blink of an eye. <laughs> All you have is memories at this point, right? Like it's just yeah, shoo, gone. You got 11 years. And then the, the thing is like, 
the hardest to really grasp. And this is something that I had to, that I, I really at the time was like, wait, hold on. But is this really what we're doing? Oh, okay. I guess this is what we're really doing. But now as an adult, like I think back on it. So I secure my father's indictment. And then my mother's side of the family, they're like, we're not going to take you in because you look like your father. Oh, God. <laughs> we don't want to have anything to do with you because you look like your father. And I'm literally going, but he just got arrested. He's arrested because of me. Like he's going to go to trial because I did the good. I did what was right. What do you mean? You don't want to have anything to do with me. I can't believe they turned their backs on you. Then you had my father's side of the family. That's blaming me for my father getting arrested. Right. That's your fault. Because they're, but despite their own feelings, like, and their own comprehension as adults of like that, my father did do this, right. Or that he is responsible for this. They're still like, they're dealing with their own shit in it. So I was sent into the foster care system, which is a fucking nightmare. I just. <sighs> and then you just got to figure it out. And it's just like, good luck, kid, figure it out. And then I had to testify like months later, you know? So I didn't have much of a familial support system at all. And I just kind of had a bunch of people around me that I felt like were kind of selfish assholes. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> And I have this father who's saying, I'm going to fight this case and I'm going to get out. And, you know, it's like, you know, you put the, the pieces together because as you find out, like they start asking you questions of like, did you see this tarp? Did you see this? Cause like, they're showing me like, do you recognize this tarp? And I'm like, oh yeah, that was the tarp that we had on our, my dad bought that at Kmart with me in the summer of 1989. And they go, yeah, that's what he used to wrap your mom's body or do you recognize, and did your dad ever buy indoor outdoor carpeting? Yeah. We had that on the patio for like three months before she, before my mom went and disappeared. Oh my God. Like my father premeditated all of this. This is a premeditated murder. I think that's something that, that some people somehow get lost in the film about, but like some people, they think that it was just like a crime of passion. It's like, no, my father planned this. That's what makes this all so bad. It's not that like he got angry and he snapped. He was planning and he tries to make it sound like that. But it's like, then why did you ask about lowering the concrete floor in your house that you bought to bury her in three, you know, two months before you bought the house? Oh my God. <laughs> why did you buy these things? Why did you rent a jackhammer while she was still alive to dig up the floor? Oh my God. You know, all these things, it's like these fantastical coincidences that my father would then would be like, well, ah, this is, I, I, it was really, it's absolutely amazing. Wow. So the house that he bought in Erie, Pennsylvania to start over with Sherry and his family that you found the photograph of. That I found the photos of is where he buried my mother's body underneath the basement floor. So <sighs> that night while I was having that asthma attack, when I thought I was going to die, when I was in, staying in the, at the principal's home was the night that they were digging her body up. And oh my God. he had buried it and like he laid down carpet. They had built shelves on top of it. It had all been repainted. They just happened to find a splatter of concrete on the wall. And they said, there's concrete. Somebody was pouring concrete down here. And then they just started ripping the shit up. That's when they found her body. Oh my yeah. God. It's wild. All of this happens. My father, I testify against my father for two days on the witness stand in open court he gets convicted for the premeditated murder. He gets 21 and a half years until he's up for parole. But I then 
somehow have to figure out what my life is like. And I'm still in foster care. I finally get adopted by a family who's great. And they're in the film, the Zigglers. And, you know, not that we didn't have our issues growing up because we did. And I was a kid to take on with a lot of stuff. And I stayed in the same small town that all of this happened. So I grew up with people knowing who I was, knowing the whole story, wanting to talk to me about it all the time. It was a whole thing. And I was just like, get me the fuck out of here. I love the town. I love the the support and the compassion that they showed me as a child. They still continue to show me to this day. I love all of that. They're great. It's no fall of that, but like the only thing you, you know, what is that song? Man, I got to get out of this place. Like <laughs> that was me. It was just like, I don't want to be known for this. And so I, I went to music school for a couple of years and then I dropped out and moved to Hollywood with, you know, a few nickels in my pocket and said, I'm going to figure out how to do something with this story. But over that time, I maintained a relationship with my father because I was always trying to come to terms with why he did what he did to sort of figure it out. And look, I obviously lived and grew up under a certain stigma that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is one of the reasons why I talk about these things. And, you know, we talk about ethical true crime. When I talk about, you know, the Murdoch case is very high profile right now. And Alec Murdoch killed his wife and his son and the surviving son, Buster. And I've come to his defense many times being like, you know, people try to pin stuff on, you know, he gets with this and then there are literal attorneys on like court TV talking about this. Well, I don't have any fear. That kid gets what he deserves. It's like that kid whose father did this. You think that he's somehow involved in this? Like, are you out of your mind? Like you talk about that. And I get really enraged when people try to loop in this thing. And because it's been so personal for me, it's like, you know, I grew up under that scrutiny. Like, oh, well, yeah, you're just going to be a murderer like your father. Because even though some people don't say it, that's what they're thinking. Like you date people and they're like, oh, great. You're going to, that's his story. Or like when I made the movie, they're like, that's the, like, I don't know if I want my, and honestly, like, I don't blame them. Like I would probably, if it was my daughter, I'd be like, I don't, I don't want anything to happen to her. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I know it sounds really fucked up, but it's like, I, I might feel the same way. I can't blame them for feeling that way. But like, right. that's one of the things I try to raise awareness for. So I had to go through processing all this as an adult. So I maintained a relationship with my father and I always wanted to get his participation. Whatever I did, whether it was a scripted series, with because I was like, I'm going to do something with this because I'm going to use my artistic abilities that I have had since I was a child, because that's how I process my trauma. I I did a TED talk about this. This is how I process trauma is through art, right? So I became an artist and I, that's, I was like, I'm going to deal with this. And so I made this documentary with two-time Oscar winner, Barbara Koppel. I called a murder in Mansfield, but Everything that I did, learning how to become a cinematographer. I mean, I've worked on, you know, hundreds of music videos, films, television shows, et cetera, et cetera. Everything. Learning the entire process of filmmaking, which I all self-taught, was all to lead me up to that moment when you see me walk into that room to sit down with my father to ask him one simple question. That one question. Which is, why did you kill my mother? Which, by the way, I had never asked him before. You know, I had maintained this relationship. I mean, I even went as so, I used to teach in his prison inmates. I used to go into the actual physical prison and teach inmates how to edit on Final Cut Pro, which is an editing software that filmmakers use and how to do work in Adobe Photoshop. How to do, like, I helped them pick out camera packages from B&H Photo. Like, <laughs> I was very involved because I was like, I'm going to do something with this. I don't know what it is. I'm going to do something with this. And I'm going to lay the foundations for this. 
And that's what you see in the film. And as you also see, like, as I say, hidden beneath the layers of narcissism and self-protection is this man who just can't give an answer for what he did because there is no answer. Like my father had absolutely no reason to do what he did no, at all. It's only based on control, coercive control, psychopathy, narcissism, these traits that are so toxic that he wanted to control my mother so much so that he wanted to go down to that basement and say, you're underneath my feet. You're right where you belong. He would have been totally fine living the rest of his days thinking that. Just terrifying. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty terrifying. It's, you know, and, and I realized like in that moment in the film and, and look, I, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, do you love your father? Of course I love my father. He's my father. I love him. You know, he's 80 years old. I think about him all the time, you know, like, I hope he's doing okay. I hope he, you know, I don't wish him anything. You know, I forgave my father years ago, but forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that it's like, I think I accept what he's done and I go, oh, okay. Well, I, I just say, there's no power that you're going to have over me over this. I'm going to do something positive with this, Right. but you know, you're a bad person. <laughs> you did really <laughs> bad things to people, Yeah. but I still love you. Like you're my father. And, you know, I was interviewed by the New York Times when the film came out and, and the guy said to me, he goes, you know what, man, there's three seconds in the movie that, that tell me everything I need to know about you. And I said, what is that? And he goes, after your father tells you this whole story about your mother and just can't admit anything, you stand up, you give him a hug and you say, I love you, pop. And I said, oh yeah, I guess I did that. And he goes, that tells me everything I need to know about you as a human being. That that's how you are. Yeah. That, he's like, I don't know a single person that's sitting there listening to that would literally say that to that man, but you do. And he's like, we all need a little bit of that in our lives. And I was like, well, you know, thank you. But, you know, it's wild. It's wild to talk about it. It's an incredibly powerful statement, though. Yeah. And, you know, you forgiving him was for you, not for him. No. So that you could move on, so that you could heal, so that you could close that chapter Ask that one burning question. Do everything in your power to get to that moment to ask that one question. And you're like, this is it. You zig or you zag. And he said, Bleh! and you said, I love you. Like, okay, like I'm closing the door. There's my answer, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, you have to think about it this way too. <laughs> so when my father comes in the room in the film, he has a smile on his face. He's very jovial. We're joking around about the weather or whatever. And, and my father actually thought that I was making a film to help him get out of prison. <laughs> and then when I say to him, one of the things I've always been interested in ever since you murdered my mother, as soon as I say that his whole <laughs> demeanor changes, the whole, the air gets sucked out of the room and it's like game on, fasten your seatbelts. Yes, I did. I did appreciate that moment. Of him like, hi, and you're like, boom. And he's like, oh. Yeah. And it, it was all nicey nice, but it was like, this is why I'm here. And this is, you know, and, you know, he wanted the opportunity to tell his story. And I gave it to him. I brought a two-time Oscar winning director for documentaries to sit in that room and interview him. To be right there. To give him his opportunity before the parole board, before God and everyone, like, this is your, and I'm even pleading with him in the film. This is your moment. I think I say, this is your moment. This isn't just for me. This is for you and your future. This is about you. I pled with him to like, just come clean so he could move on and maybe get paroled or do whatever he, you know, like have that moment. And he just couldn't do it.
And I don't know anyone who would ever do that. I mean, I'm just crazy, (laughs) but it's because I was just so hell bent on getting my answer and moving on with my life. And it's like, you know, again, you push all the chips into the table. I pushed all the chips into the table when I testified against him. I knew that by testifying against my father, that there was a chance he was still going to get off and that I could go back to his care and that he would probably either find me, you know, tossed off a bridge somewhere or he would torment me the rest of my life. And I would, you know, remember the time you try to get me you know, convicted for killing your mom. Well, by the way, I did, but they can't charge me again. No double jeopardy. Right. You know, I mean, it would have been, it would have been insane. I knew what I was up against. And the same thing in that situation. It's like you push all the chips in life into the middle of the table sometimes. And that's what I did. I was like, this is it. This is for all the marbles. And I was very lucky. Do you feel like you got your closure in that question? A hundred percent because you see the interaction and it's like my Ted talk is called, what if the answer you seek is not the answer you need? It's I realized that at that moment, like that isn't the, the, I don't need to know why he did this. In fact, I realized that if he had told me if he had given me the answer of been like, this is, I probably would have more questions. I wouldn't have how I feel now. Yeah. I wouldn't have that closure. I mean, it's not closure. You never get closure from these things. Right. But like I wouldn't have that peace. The real thing is it's not really closure. It's the peace that you need to move forward. Like I wouldn't have that peace. Right. The peace. Exactly. Of like, okay, it's okay. You're going to be okay. You made it this far. You've survived 100% of your worst days. Absolutely. And you've done so much really incredible, great things since then. Not just this documentary where you get to tell your story. Yeah. You have two podcasts where you talk about the trauma. We mentioned one of them with Tara when we had that talk. And then you have your own podcast. Will you tell us about that one? Yeah. So I have Moving Past Trauma, which literally is a very, you know, it tells part of my own story. I read my father's letters from prison Oh God! because those became, you know, an integral part of the film. You know, I have over 400 letters from them and and the impact is, you know, I have a YouTube channel at Collier Landry and I do all this. It's, there's a video version of the podcast and it's called moving past trauma. And I I read these letters and they expose like narcissism, gaslighting, manipulation, and the the far reaching effect of all this has helped thousands and tens of thousands of people that have seen this material that have listened to my podcast that have seen my film that have gone. If that guy can make it, I can make it too. Yeah. And to share these things because so many of these traits are like they're ubiquitous, right? Absolutely. (laughs) They just transcend everyone. You see it once, you can't unsee it. It's like a car wreck, right? You can't unsee certain things in life. And it's once you see that in people, you can recognize those traits in, in others. And that's the great thing is that like the awareness and spreading awareness. And so I talk about that on Moving Past Trauma. I interview people. I've interviewed you. Yeah. We've had fun conversations. And I also, you know, I have Survivor Squad, which is really one of the, it's a very buckled down, a very, you know, it has a very good solid format of we talk to survivors and they share their stories in their own words beyond the headlines and what came next for them, like what they're doing with their lives, how they move through all that. So I have those two different podcasts. I have, like I said, the show on YouTube, on on my channel, Call Your Landry. And that's what I talk about. I talk a lot about the mental health aspects behind all of this and surviving all of this and, and trying to move forward and live your best life. I really appreciate that. And also going on because you doing all of this go falls into the ethical true crime, which we're talking about, but I have a couple questions for you. 
Yeah. What is, as someone who's, you know, a part of this big case with your mother, when you see your story, like maybe people cover it on their YouTube channels or whatever, and you're not involved, right? Someone just finds it. They find it on Wikipedia and they're like, I'm going to cover this story. This is an interesting story. Oh, man. How does that make you feel as the victim in this story, watching your story? Like, again, like you said, commodified or sensationalized, and you didn't really have any input or, or no one even reached out to you to say, hey, do you even want to help me get the right story out? Okay, so I have very different feelings about this because this was the genesis of Survivor Squad, right? So to answer your question, it pisses me off, but I'll tell you why it pisses me off. So somebody did a YouTube video about my story and they literally went to my channel and pillaged all my videos. They ripped all my videos off my own channel from my own podcast. Oh, wow. And then made a video about it and got millions of views and has a huge channel because of it. You know, they tell other stories, but they have mine. They ripped my documentary, all of the stuff, and they do a botched job of it. Right. And I was so pissed because I was like, Y'all have made way more money than I have on my YouTube channel, but you didn't even give me credit. So I reached out to them and at least they gave me credit, but like that made me angry. I'm like, you took my own content. So I have to do my, a lot of my friends who are big YouTubers are like, you're going to do that exact same thing with your own stuff and tell your story. Cause I'm like, because they sensationalize it and I've never done that. And I'm like, I, dummy caller, you should be doing that. The thing with survivor squad and with my feelings of people like that just irritates me, but nobody has really done that. One of the unique things that I realized and was after I interviewed Tara on my podcast called Moving Past Murder at that time, now it's called Moving Past Trauma, is she was sharing about Dirty John and all of the podcasts and her not being involved in the podcast generating all this revenue. And I thought the unique thing with my story is that I always took control of that narrative. Like, look, I made the documentary. Right. You know, one of my closest friends to this day is John Morrissey. He made American History X. I met him because American History X was one of my favorite films of all time. I said, whoever did that film understands the consequences of violence. Flash forward 10 years later, I meet him. A few years after being friends, I said, I have a project. He said, I've worked with Barbara Koppel. And then that's how Murder in Mansfield happened, right? Wow. But it was all from me, right? I'm the one that started that and, and, and moved it forward. Nobody came to me. Nobody said, we're going to tell this story without you, anything. Forensic files had come to me back in the day and wanted me to be a part of the program. I'm so glad I didn't have anything to do with it just because it enabled me to tell my story on my own terms. I think they did a fantastic job with the episode. It's called Foundation of Lies, season five, episode 13. It's one of the most popular episodes of that show ever. But it gave me a foundation to be like, look, this is an interesting story. So when I was pitching it to networks like Investigation Discovery and Amazon, for my documentary, they were like, oh, there's interest in this. Yeah. But when I saw Tara's story being exploited and other true crime survivors, all these podcasts generating all this money, all of these projects, and people just assume that if you go and you give it an interview on Dateline or somebody makes a lifetime movie, that somebody must have backed up a Brinks truck to your driveway and dropped a pile of money on you. <laughs> and that's not how it works. Right. People don't get paid for those interviews. If they do, it's not much money at all. Like I made the least amount of money out of anyone in my documentary, but for me, it wasn't about money. I wanted to tell that story. I needed to do that for myself, for my own peace of mind. It wasn't about that. So often we think that, you know, but the people who are making podcasts about it, they're making tons of money and they're generating millions upon millions of dollars on the backs of other people's sorrow. Like, yeah, that's what true crime is. Right. Right. So I became very attuned to that. I'm like, that's really fucked up, you know, and it's fucked up the people's stories. I mean, Dirty John has over 100 million downloads. That's made a ton of money for Wondery and the television series and stuff. And 
Tara got paid some money, but not a lot, not what you would think or you would expect or what a normal creator, because the interesting thing about true crime and where we talk about the ethics is I've worked in the entertainment industry for almost two decades and in all forms, I was in front of the camera and behind the camera. And now I'm back in front of the camera. Any other thing, if I come to you with a story and I'm like, I've got this thing. It's about these kids who go to wizard school and they have this whole thing. And we're, I want to do a movie about this. And you go, well, wasn't there a book about that? Well, we got to go who, JK Rowling. We got to go approach her first right. to see if we can make and buy the rights to that. That doesn't happen in true crime. Right. They come there. Like I have this story and I'm going to write this script about this murder that happened in a small town. And this is what it is. And they can use all the facts and everything because they can do it under the guise of fair use. So everyone, the writer who writes that story gets paid. The producers, the directors, the actors, the everyone involved. The only person that doesn't get paid by that story is the person who it happened to, who should probably get paid the most or at least something because they probably have, they've never gotten any compensation for that. And all they've had is they've been traumatized and victimized. Yeah. So that's where I really got intrigued of like, oh, these stories exploit people, but they never, ever like nobody profits except for the people who exploit the story. Right. You would think it would be the other way around. And I think society thinks that like, you know, in this altruistic sort of way, oh, they get paid for the stories. They make all this money. That's not what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do know what you mean. The Hollywood machine already exploits people. Like, look, we're still in what month five of the writer's strike now almost. Right. You know, we already know it does that. Like they just, Everyone in this production would get paid except for the person whose story it is. Yeah. Oh, sometimes they buy life rights, sometimes, but there's nothing that says they won't, you know? And oftentimes the thing that I like to shed the light on is these stories will get told and they are public and then people are portrayed in these shows. And then back in the day when they were making these shows, we didn't have social media. We didn't have to navigate these parasocial relationships. Now what happens is they can find the person on social media, they can hide behind that keyboard and they can, yes, they can send very supportive messages, but they can also send some really evil, nasty stuff. I get really nasty stuff written to me. Tara gets really nasty stuff written to her. Really? Yeah. It's astonishing. I have friends who we interviewed Rita Isabel, whose brother was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. An actress plays her because her victim impact statement in the Dahmer trial at the sentencing, she tries to basically kill him. She goes off, rightfully so. Right. And an actress portrays her. People found her on social media and they send her because she's black. They send her obviously racist comments, <gasps> horrific comments about her that they're coming to get her. I mean, this stuff is wild. And do you think that she ever saw a dime of compensation from Ryan Murphy or that show? Of course not. No, of course not. And that's where it gets dangerous is that people, because it's an obsessive genre and people become so engrossed by these characters. And then if they can find them and actually contact them, they will troll them hard. Oh my God. And they will write really vulgar things. I mean, I get things of people, you know, speculating that because I told my mother about my father's affair, that I was responsible for her death. <laughs> because she wouldn't have known about the affairs. Like how stupid do you think you didn't think she knew? Come on. Man. Oh God. Yes. She knew she knew my father's girlfriend was pregnant at the time. Oh my God. <laughs> I have a half sister that was born 12 days before my father was arrested. Oh my God. What happened to all of them? Are they still around? And they, I don't have a relationship with either one of my sisters. Yikes. 
I haven't seen my adopted sister since 1991. I was never allowed to have a relationship with her. She was adopted by our foster parents. They wanted to adopt her. They didn't want to adopt me. They then cut off any, I've never seen her since. It's been 30 years. So I have no idea how she's doing. That's disgusting of them. Yeah, it's, it, it really sucks. As far as my half sister, I had a relationship with her for a long time, but then the film, right? You know, the, when the film got made and came out, that sort of ceased to happen. And I wish her all the best. And, you know, I know that she's doing well from what I hear. And I, I want people to most certainly leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't harass people. <laughs> leave my family alone. You can come after me. I'll engage with you all day, but uh, you can say whatever you want to me. Yeah, leave it as a I've YouTube comment. Leave it as a YouTube <laughs> comment. Exactly. I hear them all. Part of true crime that nobody realizes is that people will just go after victims. And, you know, a lot of these perpetrators have choruses of sycophants, right? That will, you know, sing their praises and that think anyone that has done anything against them because they deify these serial killers or these crazy people, they troll them. And it really sucks. And people don't consider that when they're commodifying true crime, that the people whose stories this is about often are then attacked because of someone else exploiting it. Yeah. Wow. That goes into another question I have. Sure. And how can creators then who are covering true crime be more ethical when it comes to this genre and telling these stories? I mean, a lot of them are. You know, there are people that definitely are. I mean, I have friends that have learned when people have attacked some of these people, they've taken their videos offline or they've stopped doing it all together. You know, there are certain creators that just feel a responsibility that wouldn't want to be in that position and feel horrible that they are somehow playing a part in that. I think that, you know, it's always good when victims, when they reach out to people or they try to get their facts straight. I know Tara has a bigger issue with it than I do because I just kind of let it roll off. But, you know, a lot of people get her story wrong. A lot of people will enhance details or leave certain key elements out of it that should be told to give context. You know, you always want to give context. I think the biggest thing is that you always want to portray the people who were the most vulnerable that were not protected. You want to make sure that you take extra care in protecting them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to a monster. But, you know, I think with anything, you want to leave this world a better place than when you found it. But I think absolutely trying to get the stories right, trying to allow them to tell the stories. And that's why Survivor Squad is such a big deal for us, because it's like we just let them tell it how it is. You know what I mean? And don't argue with people's facts. Like you weren't there. Right. <laughs> you weren't there. You don't know because you read some Wikipedia article because you followed some news story because you listened to some podcast does not mean that you somehow are a bigger authority than the person that had this happen to them. A lot of people try to pick Tara apart for her attack and they're like, well, this person said this and this is like, were you there? Were you there? Okay. Do you, <laughs> you know, it's wild. It's unbelievable. And the reason why I, I think, and this is a really key point. The reason why people try to do that is it's a self-protection mechanism. They do that because the more that they can separate themselves from the actual victim, the more they can convince themselves that, that could never happen to me. Yeah. Nobody could ever do that to me or my family. Right. I'm above that. I'm smarter than that. 
No one would ever do that to me. I would never fall victim to a con man. I would never allow this to happen to my daughter. I would never allow this to happen to my mother. I would see all the signs. I would have gotten out. I would have done this, you know, because society is so supportive of a single mother trying to escape an abusive marriage because there's just a lot of support for that. Right, (laughs) right. There's only support like once something horrible happens and then everyone's like, they should have done the thing. Exactly. And you're like, there wasn't a thing to do. What are you talking? about yeah it's like the stalking cases when people were like oh i would have known better it's like yeah wait till that happens to you i mean you know or wait till you actually have a police officer say come back when you're dead like we can't do anything until this person does something right oh you mean until they kill me or they try to kill me yeah or they kidnap my child oh okay it's compassion it's always something empathy yeah it's always something that anyone can lead with and not a false sense of compassion, not virtue signaling, not any of that bullshit, real hardcore, get in the trenches, compassion and empathy. Yeah, absolutely. I think as long as if you are making any kind of content in which there is a victim and you're telling their story, it should be victim forward and victim based. 100%. And you should be there to tell that person's story as best as you can and try to reach out to them. Because even though we've been in documentaries, I'm an email away. Like if somebody wanted to tell my story and they didn't involve me, I would be like, why didn't you just email me? Like literally say it on every episode, just email me. So also if you're telling stories and the victims are around to help you tell the story, not only is it going to make your story so much better, sure, but you're going to be able to have a more ethical standpoint to be able to tell these stories when you're working with the victim. As somebody who, you know, you tell victim stories, I tell victim stories. Absolutely. It's unfortunately very easy to be able to get in touch with these victims and say, yeah, I want to help you tell your story on this platform that I have for this very reason. It's also, you know, it makes for a better story. But also the flip side, if you contact someone and say, hey, I'm going to cover this or I'm going to talk about this. And then they and they say, please don't don't do it. Because guess what? And I hate to say this because it's really messed up, but like there are plenty of stories out there. Yeah. Like there is no shortage of true crime content, you know, I myself am delving into, you know, more of that and talking about other people's stories and just sort of sharing my perspective on it. So I try to just lead with that whole, like, I'm going to talk about this because I've been through this, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Collier, for coming on and telling your story. You're welcome for being so candid and open, for giving us like details and just, I mean, you are totally Bruce Wayne. You are totally a Hardy boy. You are so (laughs) awesome. I I just hope that if anything, God forbid, whatever happened to me, that I would have a daughter as tenacious as you were at that age to fight for me Yeah, because you literally were your mother's hero and you did it. Yeah. You saved her as best as you absolutely could. And now you have her story and her memory to honor. Yeah. And that's you. I mean, yeah, sure. You walk down the stairs five o'clock in the morning with a room full of cops and your buddy going, thanks, Collier. But at the end of the day, like, regardless if your shitty family blamed it on you, like you were your mother's hero and you set her free and no one else could but you. And I, you should be so unbelievably proud. I am proud to, to call you a friend knowing that's something that you did for her. Mm. And when she needed a voice the most that you were that voice for her. That's what a best friend does. And I know you guys were besties. And so, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you did her good. 
You did her so good. So everybody who fell in love with you, because it's so easy to fall in love with Collier, he's just the greatest. Where can we find you so we can follow along and leave nice YouTube comments? So you can find me anywhere at Collier Landry. All my socials are at Collier Landry. My website is CollierLandry.com. That'll lead you there. CollierLandry.com forward slash links will lead you to all my social medias and everything. And I have a YouTube channel. So please like and subscribe. Check it out. I tell... You know, I got like a hundred some episodes up there of moving past murder, moving past trauma. I do lives weekly on Wednesdays and Thursdays at, at 6 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, I have a, a pretty large TikTok following and Instagram, all the socials. I'm very accessible. I'm always out there. I'm on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days. And <laughs> I'm just kind of a, you know, I'm a what you see is what you get guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm pretty open. I'm pretty authentic. I don't have a lot of time for like bullshit or anything like that. It's just like, right. you either like me or you don't. I, I Life is too complicated. Right. Same. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're the same way. Exactly. The terror is the same way. Yeah. If you don't like me, that's fine. Move on. And you're also like on the circuit of like going to the crime cons and the podcast cons. That's right. Yes. We're going to actually get to meet in person at Obsess Fest, which I'm super excited about. Yes, we are. I know that we recorded this a while ago, but I think it's happening like next week or something. Yes. And it's I'm very excited yes. about that. So if anybody is listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be there. Make sure that you come say hi to me and make sure you come say hi to Tara and Collier and get to know us. It's a really wonderful group of people in this genre. This true crime, true con genre is just really a really wonderful space. I think I've met my coolest online friends in this group of people. It is really cool. And we're super stoked to be at Obsessed Fest. So I have a couple quick questions. Yeah, for sure. They're as quick as you want to answer or as long as you want to answer. I call them rapid fire, but I think everybody knows they're not so rapid. That's funny. We're going to go with true crime because okay. that's what we're talking about today. So give me a word that encompasses how you feel about the true crime space. Oh, the first word that came to mind, no cap, insidious. That was the first word Ooh. that came to mind. It's also a fellowship too. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a little scandalous. I think somebody should make a podcast about people who make true crime podcasts. I think that would be a great one. Maybe I'll be the first one to do that. It would make a great series. That's for sure. It would be very interesting. Give me a warning to somebody who wants to get into the true crime content space. <laughs> what would you say is maybe something that they should heed before jumping in? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's, uh, I was at a podcasting conference last year. First one I ever was at and somebody comes up to me and they go, Oh my God, did you know that only like three to 5% of podcasters make any money at all? And really only the 1% make like decent money enough to survive. And I looked at the girl and I said, honey, I'm a filmmaker. Like, I like those odds. <laughs> I really like those odds. Those are way better than filmmaker odds, to be honest with you. <laughs> so again, I have a really skewed sense of perception. I think that anyone that that jumps into this genre has to really be prepared with it. I, because I, I, I speak a lot about the mental health aspect of these things. I think that in all seriousness, if you are jumping into, or you do consume a lot of this content, you really have to watch out for your mental health. It is a real thing that hearing too much about murder and scams and uh, all, all of these things that, you know, 
it, it can really skew your sense of the world. You can almost become immune to it too, or desensitized. And you don't want to do that. You know, you also don't want to be paranoid. Like the world is a bad place or this could happen to you. Like you want to be cautious. You don't want to be an idiot, but you also don't want to like have these things circling through your head. It's one of the reasons why I watch like sports shows, because even though when I wasn't like super into sports, I mean, I, I love sports, but like I wasn't a sports show watching guy, but I started watching them because A, I like the banter between the hosts and B, sports are like the most benign thing ever. It's like, it's what a waste to talk about. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, there's no stakes whatsoever, whether the Eagles win the Super Bowl or the Kansas City Chiefs. It's not a life or death moment. You know, <laughs> lives are not at stake, right? It doesn't matter. It's ridiculous, right? right? But we put so much on it and I yeah. just think, oh, this is just a great way to tune out and talk about something that actually has no bearing on anything honestly it's a heavy topic it's a really heavy topic even if you go at it in a light more comedic way yeah it is still such a heavy topic and i don't think a lot of people realize it i see a lot of people that will get into different genres that i dip my toe in and they go really hard and they get really popular and then they disappear sure because the burnout gets them yeah and the burnout is really hard when you're talking about really vicious things the burnout is a completely different kind of burnout if you don't love what you do that's the thing you know as i think about like look i was a filmmaker for years i still am a filmmaker but now i'm focusing on creating more content my youtube channel is like my main thing my podcast is my main thing survivor squad is my main thing right and I think about like the content that I want to create three to five years down the road. Like I want to be in a position where I'm setting all that up. I have a friend who blew up on YouTube this year. He's making crazy money on YouTube. And he's like, I'm fucking miserable, man. Yeah. He's like, every time I post a video, if it's not about this thing, nobody wants to watch it. And I could not care less. I can't keep talking about this, but they love it. And it's keeping my channel. And now I've painted myself into a corner. Yeah. Because when I talk about what I want to talk about, nobody wants to listen to it. And I'm like, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> this, I don't want to trigger you, <laughs> but I know that you're very open about your story. I'm not easily triggered. <laughs> you're like, that's my life. What is the worst memory of this entire ordeal that you went through? I mean, there's so many. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think that I think the thing that was the worst memory for me was not feeling like I was in any sort of control about my situation, even though I was the one who was like taking the control. Yeah. Like, I think that, you know, okay, now a bunch of adults are going to decide what's going to happen to you in your life. Well, okay. But where were the adults when I really needed them? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, outside of Dave Messmore, who had stepped up at that time and who listened to me and believed this, you know, 11 year old kid. And ultimately, you know, he and his wife wanted to adopt me. And, you know, my adoptive parents are great too. But in that time of like that limbo, there really wasn't a lot of people that were really genuinely looking out for me other than myself. And I think that sort of that feeling of like being looked at or being taken advantage of or not being heard. And that frustration was probably <sighs> the hardest thing that and not being able to see my dog. Yeah. That really affected me. And I'll tell you a really quick story about that. So when I was touring around with a murder in Mansfield, we were playing in Mansfield and on the second day of our screening, we sold out two shows and we sold out the first show and we had to do a second show. And it was about a hundred and some degrees outside. It was like an August day and it was, it really was a crazy hot and the projector shut off like halfway through the film. 
And I freaked out because I thought the projector bulb blew. I looked back and the guy in the, in the booth because the projector's upstairs. And I was like, oh, my God, we blew. If we blew a bulb, we're screwed because it's like it's not like you're in Hollywood. You can just go get one. Right. Down the street. You know, it's your man's really. Nobody's got you know, a projector bulb, right? They didn't show <laughs> movies at this place, you know. But there was a woman that was trying to get my attention. I could see what she was looking at me at the before the film started. And so we had this sort of forced intermission. And I was like, I ran up and like, okay, the projector, whatever. Then we're waiting for it to cool down. And we're talking. And then this woman comes up to me and she goes, Collier. And, and she's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. And I was like, hey. I was like, I saw you looking. I didn't get to say hi. But she's like, yeah. She's like, did you have a wired hair fox terrier? Was that the type of dog you had? <sighs> and I said, my eyes start like welling up with tears. And she's like, we had your dog. She adopted him. Her family adopted him and she grew up on a farm and they had pigs and horses. And she's like, I want you to know, I'm going to cry. Just think about that. Oh my God. Me too. She's like, I want you to know that he had the best life and he would run around. He had all this space. He ran and he was best friends with the pigs and he would go and sleep in the pig pen with the piggies at night. She's like, he lived such a long and happy life and we loved him so much. He was the best dog. Like, I I just want you to know. And I was just like, tears just pouring down my face. Oh my God. That's the thing is like, you know, when you think about like telling your story and you think about me, you know, making the film and like everybody's, oh, you you know, because you don't do things for money. You do them for like to have, like that moment is priceless to me. Yeah. I will never... You could have thrown millions of dollars at me and that I would not have gotten that much satisfaction out of that one conversation with that woman telling me, Hey, this is what happened to your dog. Like that literally solved it for me. I would have never known. Never. And if it wasn't for that moment of that projector going out at that right time, I mean, there's so many things that are like in the film in general and just the people that I met around the world and just the moments that I had with people. And it was all because of my mother. Yeah. You know, it was all, be- I mean, it's like I was able to have those moments that will last a lifetime. They last me a lifetime. I would never have had that if I hadn't pursued, you know, forget what I did as a kid, but if I hadn't pursued the career and the life that I wanted to pursue and that sort of burning desire to do something with it artistically and share that story with the world. If I hadn't done that, none of that would have happened. I wouldn't have gotten, you know, you talk about closure earlier. That's the real closure is getting the answers to these questions that you just, that have always haunted you that you never thought you would ever find out. To find out something like that. The amount of peace that that brought me was just like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, the connections. What was his name? Gowdy. Gowdy. He was a wired hair fox terrier. Gowdy lived a long, happy life. He lived a long, happy life. He played in the pig pen with the piggies and he was a very happy puppy. And that's, that was like the best thing to hear. Well, that kind of closure makes me happy. I'm glad. I'm glad that your dog got to live a wonderful life after everything that happened. Oh yeah, it was great. It's like those little moments. You can't put a price on that. Like that, just that moment of just happiness of just like, that's, yeah, I never would have had that. I never would have known. Wow. It's really cool. It is really cool. What is the hardest lesson that you learned during this ordeal? The hardest lesson? Yeah. Well, I I mean, I didn't learn the lesson because I knew I already had the lesson mastered, which is, I talk about this a lot when I like talk to young people, like mentor young people. Like you have to think about 
you know, everybody talks about living in the moment and whatever, but like you have to think back, like, what are you going to do right now that is going to impact the next rest of your life? What is that decision? Like, I didn't have to speak up to the police. I didn't have to do what I did. I put my life at risk for my mother to get justice for her. I, I was almost killed. I later learned that my father had a fixer in Florida that would do stuff for him. He probably would have been the one to kill me. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have that moment, like that brass ring moment where you're like, this is the moment where I can push all the chips to the middle of the table and do what's right. And what I know, no matter what the circumstances, that I have to do this. I can't live in regret because if I didn't do what I did, I would have regretted it the rest of my life. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror. Yeah. If I hadn't lived in integrity, if I wouldn't, you know, this isn't like to be like, oh, I'm so virtuous or whatever. It's just a fact. If I hadn't chosen in that moment to do what I did, I would have regretted it the rest of my life. So that's the lesson to be learned. You don't want to live with any regrets. Yeah. If I was to walk across the street and get hit by a bus tomorrow, I would go out with a smile on my face knowing I did everything I could in my life to live the best life that I could. Sure, I made mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But I did something and I did something for my mother and I sought that justice and I turned that tragedy into a purpose for myself and used that to impact the world. Because when I'm dead and gone, like that in the annals of history, Collier did that. Yeah. It is etched in film. It is in, he did that. That guy did that. That's a legacy. You got to think about the legacy that you want to leave. Yeah. And that leads right into my last question, which is the positive takeaway from this entire ordeal, which I think you've mentioned several times, but you can wrap it up real nicely if you'd like. It's a very profound statement and some people probably aren't going to agree with it. But when I look back on all of this, I would not change a thing. And I know it's hard for people to wrap their minds around, but as painful as it has all been, as, as painful as it still continues to be, I wouldn't change it for the world. It just made me who I am. And I genuinely like that guy. Yeah, he's pretty great. I genuinely feel good about where I'm at and what I've done. And most importantly, what I did for my mother. And I know that she is so unbelievably proud of you and how you honored her and how you brought her justice. I just, I want to say thank you again so much for being just so candid and sharing so much of this story. I really am so thankful that we've become friends through our trauma and we've met because of all of these horrible things that happened to us, Right. but that we're able to <laughs> do the same and, and to share victim stories and to help people heal from the traumas that they face as well. Yeah. It's uh, an incredible honor in all ways. <laughs> it really is. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm sorry I talked so long. <laughs> it's great. I love it. <laughs> Brevity is not my specialty. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our new website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, 
please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans.